My guest this week is an internationally renowned religious scholar. He identifies as Muslim, but that wasn't always the case. I was converted to Islam by Catholic priests. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh my gosh, that's, that's she's so wild. In this episode, Reza Aslan sets the record straight on Islam. Muslims believe that, that Jesus was a prophet and a messiah. They actually rank Jesus higher than the prophet Muhammad. And why he believes your faith should not be in religion. So I'm here with best-selling author, religious scholar. He holds a bachelor's in religious studies and a master of theological studies from Harvard Divinity School. He's a TV commentator. He's written three books on religion. Reza Aslan, welcome to Journeys of Faith. Thank you for having me. So you have quite an interesting journey. I want to dig in. You are an Iranian-American. You were born in Iran. Your family came to the States. You grew up in San Francisco. But you were born into a Shia Muslim family. You converted to Christianity. And then you converted back to Islam the summer before you attended Harvard. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that, that, that's about that's, uh, that's right. That's <laughs> quite the journey, the, the faith journey that you've been on. So, so, you're, so let's just rewind quite a bit. You're born into a Shia Muslim family. What made you convert to Christianity as a teenager? Well, you know, I was Muslim in Iran the way so many people are Christian in America, right? It wasn't so much a a belief uh, or a faith expression as it was a matter of identity. That, by the way, is true for most people in the world. I think people think that religion is about the things that you believe or the rituals that you practice. And certainly those things are important. But religion is first and foremost a matter of identity. It's about who you are as a person, how you see yourself in the world, and it's very deeply entwined in your citizenship and nationality, your culture, your race sometimes. Um, I was a Muslim in Iran because, well, everybody is right. Muslim <laughs> in Iran. Um, but, you know, we we weren't that we weren't that much of a um, kind of a pious family. My father especially was kind of a a, a pretty uh, outspoken atheist, uh, which is fairly unusual in, in Iran. You know, he had communist background. He was very leftist. Um, you know, he, he just thought that all religion was ridiculous. He was kind of, I always joke that he was the kind of atheist who always had a pocket full of Prophet Muhammad jokes that he would pull out at oh, inappropriate gosh. times. Oh, gosh. He was that guy. Know? Yeah, that guy. Exactly. He was that guy. Um, and then, well, you know, when we came to the United States, this was the 1980s. It was, a, it was not the best time in the world to be Muslim or Iranian in America, as opposed to now when it's fantastic. Wait, exactly. I'm like, um, and how much of that has changed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this was the height of the Iran hostage crisis, right? right? So, you know... Uh, any kind of last hint of um, Islam that was in our family pretty much went away at that point. Okay. And, you know, my mom still prayed kind of quietly to herself, but um, for the rest was of us, that was Was she scared to pray in public at that point, or was she ashamed of it? I think she was smart enough to know that we, that many of our uh, neighbors thought of us as a kind of enemy. Uh, and see. that, you know, it would just be best to kind of keep things under wrap. Mm -hmm. And my dad, who never wanted to be, you know, Muslim or religious anyway, thought, well, this is great. So <laughs> this, is, this is fantastic. <laughs> this is why we came here. Uh, we don't have to pretend to be religious anymore. Right. Um, but I always 
maintain this deep fascination um, with religion and, and spirituality. I kind of, you know, as an adult, I think back to sort of where that all came from. And I, I think maybe it's because of my experience of revolutionary Iran. I mean, you know, when you as a young uh, person see the way that religion can transform a society um, for good and for bad, it, it stays with you. Sure. And so I always had this deep fascination with religion and spirituality, though, um, as I say, I didn't really have much of an opportunity to express that. Right. And then, of course, I went to I went to high school and some friends and I went to this evangelical youth camp. Um, Young Life, some people might be. Oh, yes. My (laughs) disclaimer, my daughter actually is involved. My husband and I are involved in Young Life, but my daughter just started going to Wildlife, which is Young Life for those out there. It's it's basically a a national youth group. It's not affiliated with one particular church. So they can pull from any number of different churches, but it's a Christian youth group. And Wildlife is the junior high version of that. So just you're a disclaimer. Talking, you're talking to one of the very first wildlife leaders ever. You were a leader. <laughs> yes. Wait, wait, wait. You were a wild – You were so you were a Young Life I wildlife went through young leader. Life. Yeah, okay. I went through Young Life. I did all the camps and did all the leadership and, you know, all that stuff. You thought about actually working for the organization for a little while, but did interning for the organization for a long time and then became one of the – when wildlife started, became one of the first wildlife leaders. I don't do things in any half-assed way, Paula. I think I that's what it. you need to know about me. Like, yeah. You are you all know, in. I am all, all or in, nothing. no matter what it is. <laughs> I am all in. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I I had this experience when I where I heard the gospel story for the first time. Um, you know, this story about how the God of heaven and earth uh, became a baby and was born and died for our sins. And, and you know, I never heard anything like that before in my life. And it was a truly profound, transformative experience for me. It was sort of the outlet that I had been looking for mm-hmm. all along. Um, and so, yeah, not only did I convert um, – but I, you know, I dove headfirst. Yeah, you became a, a wildlife leader. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You were I, in it to win I it. jumped in, yeah. Yeah, you did. So so what happened? Because you, you convert back to Islam however many years later, maybe was it 10 years later, right before you go to Harvard, where that's where you received your master's of well, theological so, studies. So Young Life, Young Life um, you know, it does come from the non-denominational uh, branch of Protestant mm-hmm. Christianity. Um, and, you know, it, it has a lot of different, you know, kinds of branches, but it is a very conservative, um, evangelical, Protestant, um, uh, uh, spiritual version of Christianity. And um, as many of your listeners know, you know, one of the foundational um, ideas of evangelical Christianity is the inerrancy of the Bible. Right. And as I say, I don't. I don't do anything unless I jump fully in. And so once I became a Christian, I decided, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to know everything that there is to know about the Bible now. And as the more I kept studying the Bible, the more I kept delving into Scripture and, and, and to, the, to the world out of which that Scripture arose, the more I kept recognizing that there were these disconnects between what I was hearing at church or what I was hearing from my, you know, youth leaders sure. 
and what I was reading about myself. Give, give so, me an example of a disconnect just to contextualize it for the listeners. Well, I'll give you the perfect example because this is exactly what a 16-year-old would be thinking about, you know, is that I kept hearing that, oh, you know, the Bible says that sex before marriage is a sin. Fornication. Yeah, there's actually nothing from Genesis to Revelation that says sex before marriage is a sin. (laughs) Nothing at all. Um, There's all these arguments about what actually the definition of fornication means, but there's uh, laws against adultery, and that's about it. So when I would bring these things in and I would sort of ask a question, I assumed that what I would get is kind of spirited debate and discussion, and instead— uh, what I received was kind of, you know, I would I, I would get shut down very very mm-hmm. quickly, and so, you know, I st- from the very beginning I had this kind of rebellious streak uh, in me. But when I went to college and decided that I was going to study the New Testament for a living, that's when I was truly confronted with a a Jesus, or what I refer to as the Jesus of history, that was profoundly different from the Christ of faith that I had been exposed to in my church. And I guess the best way to put it is that I became more interested in the Jesus of history. He, be, he, he, he felt more real to me. He felt more important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding who this person was, this poor, illiterate peasant from the backwoods of Galilee who through the power of his teachings and the power of his charisma, you know, launched a, a movement on behalf of the dispossessed and the disempowered and the marginalized, um, you know, the the dregs of society, a movement that was so uh, profound that it, it was seen as such a threat to the greatest empire the world had ever seen that he was hunted down like a criminal, arrested, tortured, and executed for sedition. That guy seemed way more interesting than the kind of celestial, not of this world, um, you know, divine like figure God that I Father. kept hearing about. Yeah. So that you're, I kept thinking you're about referring to God the Son because you have God the Father, Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the exactly. Holy Spirit. Exactly. And, um, and so, you know, all of that kind of put me in this place where um, – I was kind of, I felt a little bit spiritually unmoored, if you will. Um, and then uh, in one of the greatest, you know, <laughs> ironies, uh, I went to Santa Clara University, a, a Jesuit, mm-hmm. a Catholic Jesuit uh, college. Um, it was it was the Jesuits, you know, my 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 priests there who recognizing that, you know, I was still longing for some kind of spiritual fulfillment in that Christianity at the at least the kind of. Trinitarian Christianity that 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 looked at Jesus as God incarnate wasn't working for me anymore. Um, they said, "Well, have you ever thought about you know the the religion of your forefathers?" And at, of course, by then I knew nothing. I knew nothing about so, Islam. So they're encouraging you to go back to yes, my Islam. yes, my I was converted to Islam by Catholic priests. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh my gosh, that's, that's this is so wild. Justin, I thought your story couldn't get any crazier. <laughs> It did. And, you know, that's I, honestly that is what happened is that, you know, I began to I began to read some books and mm-hmm. I began to read about sort of history and beliefs and theology. And and uh, it was sort of like it was sort of recognizing that these I was finding words 
for things that I already believed. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. Right. And And uh, you finally felt satisfied with Islam. No. No, Oh, no. Okay. Because here's the other thing. (laughs) Yeah. You thought it was just a three-step process. Here's the other thing. Um, When you study the religions of the world, it becomes very difficult to take any one of those religions all that seriously Mm -hmm. anymore. Certainly to take any one of those religions' uh, truth claims seriously any longer. Because the first thing that you recognize when you study religion as as an academic discipline is that religion and faith are not the same thing. No, (laughs) faith is a personal relationship. Religion is just, from my perspective, it's... Well, it it can be the way you express it, but when I think of a religious person, I just think of somebody that's kind of going through the motions that might be living their life a certain way because they think there's going to be a prize at the end. It's They're living by a set of rules and regulations, and it might be a little more legalistic. But faith is is actually having a relationship and having uh, – it's something that you hold dear to, and it's something – for me, I know it's been the foundation of my marriage and my life, and it's been the yeah. glue that's held me together. Religion's not going to hold you together when the times right. are tough. You said it Your right. Faith Rules. Will regulations, mm-hmm. authority structures, institutions, so, symbols, metaphors. Right. You know, and, and those things are important. But I mean, I, you know, I spend, I spend my life studying those things. So uh-huh. obviously I recognize the importance in them. But as you, I think, rightly say, you know, the, the faith experience is it's deeply individualistic. It's it's um, it's emotional. It's um uh, nebulous and, and ineffable, um, and religion is kind of how you how for a lot of people how they kind of make sense of it, how mm-hmm. they put it into words, how they sort of construct it, how they put put it in in, in a way in which they can um, uh, talk about it to themselves and to other people. And you know, in my sort of work with people of faiths from you know every walk of life all around the world. The one thing that I have realized, it's nothing unusual here, it's what everybody who does this realizes, is that those people are a lot alike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that they actually, um, you know, the, that the emotions that they express, the way that they express it, the, 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 um, the, the faith journeys that they undergo are extraordinarily similar. Sure. And that... How they choose to to express those things, the symbols and metaphors that they use, that those are different, and that the problem for most people is that we get caught in you know the the symbol or the metaphor itself rather than what the metaphor stands for. So, if um, I were to ask you today, in what because we're dis- we're making a clear distinction here between religion and faith. So, if I were to ask you today, in in what or whom is your faith? What do you believe? What would you say? My faith is in God. My faith is not in any religion. I don't trust anybody who says, I believe in Christianity as though that is something to believe in or like I believe in the Quran. Those are not things to believe in. Those are things that point you towards the only thing to believe in, which is God. And I think that's that's kind of become the sort of the prevailing sentiment of my my life as a person of faith and mm-hmm. my work as a scholar of religions is, um, you know, don't confuse the signposts for God. Yeah. I think there are so many misconceptions 
of the Islamic religion. It it constitutes 25 percent of, of the world's population. What do you think are some of the bigger misconceptions? And also, what do you believe about Jesus? You wrote a book called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. So what does Islam A believe about Jesus? And what do you think in your mind are some of the greatest misconceptions? I think all of the all of the misconceptions of Islam can be summed up in one misconception. Okay. And that is that Islam is unique or special or different, not privy to the same cultural or historical um, or even literary influences. It's just a religion like every other religion. It is as it is the most diverse religion in the history of the world. It it comes in a thousand different flavors. There are traditionalists and there are progressives. Constant cha- state of evolution. It is constantly adapting to the world around it, to the cultures that it mm-hmm. comes across. It, there's nothing unusual or unique about Islam as a religion. That's the biggest misconception. Interesting. And it's the it's a misconception that almost all Americans have. You hear it all the time, you know. Yeah, but the thing about Islam is that, you know, there's no separation of uh, mosque and state. No, actually, Islam invented the concept of separation of mosque and state. Um, and in fact, uh, throughout history and in most uh, Muslim communities, most Muslim countries, with the exception of Saudi Arabia and Iran, the religious authorities have no influence whatsoever over the state. Countries like Egypt or countries like Syria, you know, these countries that we talk about having these, you know, tremendous terrorism problems are uh, violently, aggressively secularist countries that Mm -hmm. actually, um, you know, very, I mean, violently repress uh, religion in politics. Whereas we not only invite religion in politics, we actually reward religion in politics. This idea that, uh, you know, the thing about Islam is it doesn't change. You see, it's always been the same. That's preposterous. Um, I think if you can say anything about Islam that you can't say about Christianity or any other religion, you're wrong about Mm -hmm. that thing with about Islam. Right. I think that's what it is, is that. We, we have this idea that somehow Islam is different than other religions, mm-hmm. and it's not. I, I was doing a little bit of research just, you know, I, I graduated from a, you, I guess you could call it a con- conservative Christian college in Ohio. It was a small college. And we all graduated with a Bible minor. We did have to study other religions. But I didn't know that Jesus was such an important figure in Islam. I, a little bit of research shows that Jesus, Mary, Abraham, Moses, and other Bible characters are in the Quran. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet of God, born of a virgin, and he's coming again. Mary has an entire book dedicated to her in the Quran. I believe she's the only female. And Muslims do believe Jesus performed miracles, but they don't believe he's the son of God. Well, oh, is that hold correct? on. Yes. Muslims believe that Jesus was the Messiah under the definition of Messiah, the Jewish definition of Messiah, before that definition was radically transformed by Jesus and his followers. What Muslims do not believe is that Jesus was divine because— Yeah, they don't believe he's the son of God. Well, you have (laughs) to— I don't mean to get technical here, but you keep using you the can't because you're a religious of, scholar and I'm not. So <laughs> you keep using the term "son of God," um, and I don't. I'm not. I think it's important to understand what that term means. Many, 
many people in the Bible are called son of God. Son of God is not a description. Son of God is a title. It's a kingly title. Um, When Jesus is referred to as son of God, Mm -hmm. it's not a description of his parentage. It's a description of his kingly authority. Um, But if what you mean by that, of course, is that he's divine, that he's God incarnate. And that is something that Muslims most definitely do not believe. And as a matter of fact, the very concept of a divine man runs counter to the, the, the concept of what God is mm-hmm. in, in Islam, right. uh, very much like Judaism. God is indivisible in Judaism and Islam. By definition, God is a unity. And so anything that um, divides God's self in any way, and certainly incarnation is one of those things, okay. um, would be considered anathema. So besides that... Um, yeah, you got it all. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, Muslims. In fact, Muslims believe that that Jesus was a prophet and a messiah. They actually rank Jesus higher than the prophet Muhammad. The prophet Muhammad who didn't perform any miracles, you know, the prophet Muhammad who died. So, the, I did know, not know that. Yeah, the prophet Muhammad isn't going to come back at the end of time. Right. Uh, Muslims believe Jesus will come back at the end of time. Muslims believe Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Mm-hmm. Um, the prophet Muhammad does not. So um, there, there's a lot of you, – you have to admit there, there are extremists in every religion. Every religion, Christian Christianity has extremists that, that yeah, most definitely, yeah. pervert the religion. Um, same with Judaism, same with Islam. So what do you say about those who've perverted Islam and sought martyrdom in the way of, of terrorism? What do you have to say? What do I say as a human or what do I say as a scholar? Um, I, as a person of faith who I probably identifies most with Islam. Yeah, I mean, as, look, as a person of faith, I'm as horrified by mm-hmm. anyone that people could pervert um, the teachings of God in, to, in, in a way that, that actually harms others, um, harms them either harms their soul or harms their bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, violence to the soul, I think, is is a, a pretty horrific and sinful thing, um, you know, as well as the mo- more obvious violence to the body. But the reason I say that, you know, that's how I respond as a person, but as a, as a scholar, I'm sort of stuck with this one fundamental fact about religion, which is that its interpretation is utterly dependent on the individual. Scripture without interpretation is just words on a page. Mm-hmm. It, it requires someone to encounter it before it can have any meaning. And obviously, that meaning is going to be filtered through that person's political views, social views, economic views, that person's gender and identity, all of those things. How do you respond to some of the main criticism? And I know you've gone back and forth with Sam Harris, who is considered one of the four horsemen of atheism. And he, his big problem with, he's got problems with Christianity, he's got problems with Islam. But in his book, The End of Faith, um, he says To see the role that faith plays in propagating Muslim violence, we need only ask why so many Muslims are eager to turn themselves into bombs these days. The answer is because the Quran makes this activity seem like a career opportunity. And he quotes from the Quran uh, 9, uh, verse 123, 
believers make war on the infidels who dwell around you, deal firmly with them, know that God is with the righteous. And then also 9 verse 73, prophet make war on the unbelievers and the hypocrites and deal rigorously with them. How shall be their home? So what do you, just like we talk about the interpretation from some of the Old Testament scriptures, what do you, how do you explain this in terms of some of the criticisms? Well, first of all, I don't take Sam Harris seriously. As I know you a, guys don't like each other. <laughs> and secondly, as I just said, the same scriptures, not just the Old Testament, but right. the New Testament right. and the Quran that promote violence also promote peace. Mm-hmm. So if Sam Harris is going to say, oh, the problem is Islam because here are some verses that promote violence. Well, why isn't he arguing? Why isn't he citing the, the uh, verses that promote peace? Do you think he's cherry problem- picking? Of course he is. Um, or the, if someone says, oh, no, the problem is really Muslims. They're the ones who are doing it. Well, that would come as a shock to the machete-wielding Christian gangs in Nigeria who are, you know, s- slicing up women and children in the name of Christ. Oh, yeah. Or for the right-wing Jewish nationalists who are killing Palestinians, including infants, in their beds by burning their houses down because the scripture told them to. Mm -hmm. Now, or for that matter, the Buddhist monks who are slaughtering women and children in Myanmar in the name of Buddhism. Now, only an ideologue or an idiot would say that's because Judaism tells them to or Christianity tells them to or Buddhism tells them to or Islam tells them to. It's the interpretation now, based on the individual, that, like you said. Yeah, ninety. Now, most people will, will ignore the first three and say, oh, no, Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism doesn't tell them to do that. That's just them, you know, interpreting their scriptures through their own violent ideology, except for Islam, except for that one. That one, that one, though, that one's different. After the break, why Reza was fired from CNN and how he manages raising kids in a multi-faith household. So you, you're married to a Christian, correct? Yes. So you have an interfaith family. That's right. Tell me yeah, how, a multi-faith family. A multi, like multi-faith family. So tell me, how do you make that work in a multi-faith family? You know, it's funny. We always laugh when people ask us this question. We understand why people ask mm-hmm. it, but we always laugh because, again, for us, what matters is faith. Religion is the language you use to express your faith. But our faith has so much more in common with each other than we actually realize. When Jessica and I met, we understood almost immediately that we shared the same values, that we understood the same ethics, that that we saw the world very much in the same way and our mm-hmm. role in the world very much in the same way. That, to put it in another term, that we shared the same faith. It's just that we express that faith in different languages. Hers was the language of Christianity and mine was the language more particularly of Sufi Islam. Mm-hmm. I already knew her language. So she learned mine. It's funny because like if you see a French person and a German person in a restaurant, you know, a couple, and they're talking to each other and one of them is speaking French and the other is speaking German, but they seem to be having a conversation. You just simply assume, oh, I get it. The German knows French and the French knows German. <laughs> it's it's the same thing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we've what we are much more interested in is not the language we use to express 
our faith or and values, but the faith and values. You um, have three boys, by the way. We have three boys, yeah. And let them kind of, you know, figure out which language they're more comfortable in. So do you, in. Do, you, do you take them to church? Uh, sometimes. Okay. Yeah, sometimes we take them to church. One of my one of my um, boys uh, two years ago, uh, we went we went to um, High Holy Days, uh, and at a um, a synagogue not far from our mm-hmm. home. Uh, since that moment, he has declared himself to be Jewish, and so he's been Jewish the last two years. And he takes <laughs> so, you, it very... so you're Jewish, you're Christian, you're yes. Islam. Yeah. Do you ever take them to? Have you? Do you take them to the mosque ever? Like how does sometimes? How... Okay. Yeah, we take them actually to um, Sufi zikrs. I um, mean, in fact, this summer, um, my wife and I and on our three kids went on an 80 day journey around the world. Um, and Wait, we immersed with your children. With their children, yeah. How old days. are they? <laughs> Thirteen countries. And um, how old are your children? I have twin seven-year-olds and a four-year-old. Oh my gosh! Yes, it was. I, it was something. <laughs> was there any enjoyment involved? I think taking your kids. It was uh, an adventure. It's, it's a trip. It was it's not an a big, adventure. Okay, yeah. there you go. We we went around the world, immersing ourselves in. The beliefs, the practices, the myths, the stories and fables mm-hmm. of the world. You know, we, we went to Sufi Zikrs and we went, walked the footsteps of Jesus. And, you know, we we learned Zen Buddhism in Kyoto. Uh, but we also went um, hunting for leprechauns mm-hmm. and we, he, um, you know, went to Stonehenge. Did you and- find any leprechauns, by the way? <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, Your children, of course. And, and you know, I think, you know, what, what we have always tried to do is we've always said, look, we want our kids to be multilingual. We want them to know the, the beliefs uh, of the world, the way in which people express their fundamental um, values and faith. But we mm-hmm. also want them to recognize how similar those values and, the, and those faiths are. Yeah, there really and, is more that unites a lot of these faiths Absolutely. and divides them. And as long as we can instill those values in them, mm-hmm. how they choose to express them is not important, mm-hmm. although we do want them to express them. You know, our our sort of founding idea in our family comes from a, a quote that the Buddha once said, which is that if you want to dig water, you don't dig six one-foot wells, you dig one six-foot well. Mm-hmm. For me... Islam is my six-foot well. For Jessica, Christianity is her six-foot well. Cyrus, you know, Judaism is it might be his six-foot well. Um, but the important thing is to just pick a well and, of course, to recognize that whatever well you choose, that the water you're drinking from is the water I'm drinking from. Mm. It's the water we're all drinking from. And it's the water that matters. Different wells, but the same water. I want to ask you about the merging of politics and faith. And you said some – you had been working for CNN as a commentator for a while. And you said some pretty inflammatory things about Trump, which got you fired. Um, I've said a lot of inflammatory things about Trump, but but I said one thing that got me fired. Do you think that it was warranted? Absolutely And tell me what you said. I think we we may have to believe it. I said that he was a piece of shit. Okay. And an embarrassment to humanity. Okay, and um, that was in the was, context. Give give us the context of what had happened leading up. So to this. there was a yes, there was a terror attack on the Thames um, in London, in which um, a man drove a uh, a van um, 
and and drove over some people and hit some people out of uh, off the bridge and into the river. And while the British authorities were still fishing bodies out of the river, um, Donald Trump tweeted that this is why we need the Muslim ban in America. And I thought that somebody who does something like that at that moment is a piece of shit. Um, and that got and, you fired. Yes. But do you, do you do you think it was warranted? I mean, did news organizations, I know Jeff Zucker, who is, he's the big boss at CNN, um, but do news organizations, don't they have an obligation to remain unbiased? How can they keep someone on the air? I'm not a journalist. Air? I'm not a journalist nor an employee of, of um, CNN. <laughs> you know, I am a, uh, a show host mm-hmm. uh, and CNN distributes my show. So you don't think um, it was warranted because you are not a journalist. Not only do I not think it's warranted, but let me just be as clear as possible. Today, calling Donald Trump a piece of shit would be a compliment. How... I like to ask a couple of set questions in the podcast, but one of them is your lowest point. Tell me what your lowest point in life was. How did your faith get you through it? Um, wow, there's so many. <laughs> go to the bottom I, of that well. I, I go to the, the bottom. bottom of the, the well. Very, very bottom. We of love that well. the well metaphor. Um, I had a, I had a very, uh, very, very. Uh, traumatizing uh, relationship breakup um, before I found the love of my life and and got married and I'm the happiest man in the world, Um, which I think, you know, put me in a place of of doubting everything, you know, like doubting myself and my beliefs and how I saw the world and how I understood, you know, these sort of fundamental things like like love and commitment and all of those things. And um, and I think that it was. It was a very interesting moment in my life because what it does, you know, I've never been an emotional person. I'm very rational in the way that I even look at emotional things. (laughs) And so it required me to sort of really double down. Like, what is it that I believe? Mm -hmm. I mean, are these things are these things that are are just um, emotions that get me through the good times or do I actually believe them about the world and about myself and, and about God? And it was a really, it was a difficult, you know, year or so in my life. But it, it actually, I feel like I came out of it much stronger because I think, you know, people talk a lot about whether, you know, faith is a, is a thing that exists in the heart or in the brain. And for me, like, I feel as though if your brain <laughs> isn't part of your faith experience, then your faith isn't strong enough, hmm. you know. Say and, that again, if your brain. Oh, if your brain isn't part of your faith experience, then your faith probably isn't strong enough. Interesting. Um, well, it's like, it, I'm just going to quote, you have to be able to explain the hope that is within you. You can't just yeah. say, this is what I, this is how I was raised and this is what I was taught to believe. It's got to be yours and you need to know why it's exactly, yours. Exactly, exactly. And I think that experience was was fundamental in making it mine. Where do you think you would be without your faith? It's so hard. It's so hard to answer that question because use your brain. That's yeah. what you just said. If your brain is part as of your brain, as I was saying before, you know, it's you know, religion is a matter of identity, and so it's like saying, where would you be if you weren't yourself? You know, it's such a hard thing to yeah. 
to to try to figure out because to me my faith isn't these things that I believe it's who I am it's what I am um, and so I can't I can't see myself without it I can't understand myself mm-hmm. you know without it it would it would be like saying well what if I weren't Iranian or what if I weren't a man or what if I weren't straight or what if I weren't it's not you know, that kind of podcast by the way <laughs> <laughs> you know those kinds of things are just um, it's just what I am mm-hmm. if there was if you could summarize your faith in one word, one word to describe your faith, what would it be, Reza? Oneness. Oneness. That is the Muslim definition of God. God is one. And that doesn't mean that there's only one God. That's not what God is one means. God in one, God is one means that God is in form and substance oneness and that may seem like a simple statement but it is the most profound thing you can say because the consequence of that fundamental elemental belief god is oneness means that there is nothing that is not god Mm. and that as sufis say is the first step to to the journey of spiritual enlightenment there is nothing that is not God because God is all. I love it. This has been very enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> Thank uh, you. I really enjoyed it. No, I, I, I think it's great to challenge you, your own beliefs and to hear other people's beliefs. I think there's not enough of that. There's so, so much dissent in the world. But if we could all agree that we all hold something dear in some capacity, and that is our faith, and though it not going to look the same for every person. But if at the end of the day we could respect one another's faith, I think we can start a new conversation and move towards um, move towards some po- positive conversations and, and positive environments that, that we so desperately need right now in our culture. Amen. So, oh, I just got an amen. <laughs> I love it. All right. Reza Aslan, I want to thank you so much for your time. And thanks for joining us on Journeys of Faith. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Next week on Journeys of Faith, she was Donald Trump's second wife. Where were you on your faith journey when you met and married Donald? When Donald and I came together, I really felt that, and I do believe, there was divinity in it. But there's so much more to Marla Maples. We'll learn about her connection with Deepak Chopra and how she survived an abusive relationship. Thank you for listening to Journeys of Faith. If you like this, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. And make sure to come back next Wednesday for our latest episode. And if you think there's someone that we should have on the podcast, let me know. Tweet me at Paula Ferris. And a big thanks to the team at ABC Radio. Susie Liu, Mike Dubusky, Louis Millman, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kalb, and Steve Jones. I'll talk to you next week.